I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. If you are using one of the Bibles that's provided for you here, you'll find that on page 974. As you turn there, just a quick little recap here. We've been working our way through the letter to the Galatians. Uh, In the previous uh, portion of text that we looked at last week, uh, the Apostle Paul had kind of time-traveled, brought us back uh, to the covenant that God made with Abraham long, long ago. And he showed to us that from the very beginning, from the inception of this covenant, the way of salvation, uh, the way of blessing, the way of being made right with God again, is only and solely by faith, by faith alone. Abraham, as the father of all the faithful, those who are of faith in Christ, uh, demonstrated this to us. So Paul brought us back to Genesis chapter 12 12, to see that reality, to see that. And then he brought us forward a bit more to the days of Moses, when the law was given through Moses. And Paul's point was that the law was not given in order to change the way of salvation by promise, Or to annul the way of salvation by promise. But rather, the law was given instead as a kind of guardian, which is going to flesh out here uh, for us as well. And so we need to recognize, as we pull back, that the way of salvation, right? How are you made right with God? What is the basis of your relationship with God? It is not your performance. It's not the amount of good works that you could one day bring before God. The sole means of of salvation, the sole means of being right with God, is believing the promise. And that promise, as even Abraham looked forward to, was ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Abraham, rejoice to see my day. It's, It's to Christ that Abraham's own faith looked to. And therefore, how am I made right with God? Though I have sinned against him, and though my conscience accuses me, and though I can recognize nothing good in me, yet I am right with God on the sole basis of believing in Jesus Christ. Because by believing in Christ, you are made one with him. You are united to him. You belong to him. And all that he has done is given to you, granted yours, bequeathed to you, which was a word we had saw uh, uh, last, last uh, week. Christ bequeaths to his church all the benefits of salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, sanctification by his spirit, and the hope of one day being glorified and sharing in his glory. So that's the big picture that Paul is trying to get at here. Now in our text before us uh, this week, uh, Paul is again going to speak about the law, how we were imprisoned under it for a time, how the church was under it as a guardian for a time, But then when the fullness of time came, when Christ was born, the Son of God, that now the church has, in in a sense, come of age. The church has now entered into the freedom and the liberty of sonship, being children of God. And so the main idea and the main theme here is that from captives under the law to now sons in Christ. Captives under the law to now sons in Christ. This is the way of salvation, and it's also the way of redemptive history as well. So Galatians chapter 3, long introduction here, but hopefully uh, it'll help the text to click as we read it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is the holy and inspired word of God. 
Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified, made right with God by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the notion of sonship, the teaching of adoption in Scripture, is very dear uh, to us as the people of God. And to know that we are God's children, to know that God has called us and is our Father, is very dear and central uh, to who we are and to who you are as the people of God. Sinclair Ferguson, in his excellent book, Children of the Living God, you may want to pick, uh, pick that and find that book somewhere, he says this, he says, The notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation. Adam, in Luke chapter 4, I believe, might be chapter 5, but I think end of chapter 4, is spoken of, or chapter 3, is spoken of as the son of God. Now, of course, Adam was not the eternal son of God, but as made in God's image, right, he is referred to in that sense as God's son. So being remade and being God's son is the apex of creation and also the goal, as we see in Galatians here, of redemption. It's the goal of redemption that we might be the children of God. A remarkable claim and a claim that we cannot make on the basis of whatever effort we can put forward. Right, that's what Paul is trying to get at here. What could you do? What could you give to God? What, what performance could you render that could make you children of God? And Paul is saying that so, that is solely by promise. It's by grace. It's by God acting. It's by God delivering. It's by God saving. And so Paul wants to see that in light of that enormous truth, the, the, the silliness of the false teachers who had begun to trouble the Galatians. Again, we had talked about this last week, just to be very brief. These false teachers had crept into the church saying, yeah, Christ is good, and the promise given to Abraham is good, but you know what? Paul is actually keeping something from you. Paul's not telling you about the law. Paul's not telling you about circumcision. Paul's not telling you about these dietary laws you must keep. Paul's not telling you about this calendar of religious days you must follow. Paul is concealing, Paul's keeping the fullness of salvation from you. Again, Paul has already answered that, saying the law wasn't given to overturn the promise. And also, the fact that we are children of God could not come through the law, but it can only come through Christ, through the promise, and through faith. And so that's what Paul wants us to see here. And so, um, again, he gives us another argument from the law, speaking as a contrast what once was, to now what is in Christ. And so the main idea is from captives under the law to sons in Christ. Captives under the law to now sons in Christ. So we'll consider that in two parts. 
So first, we think about captives under the law. Notice the temporal language uh, that Paul uses, the temporary, the time-bound language that Paul uses in these opening verse, verse 23. Paul says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, um, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, we've said a lot about the law last week, and so we don't need to flesh everything out. Uh, But what Paul emphasizes here is the role of the law in the Old Testament over the church as a kind of guardian, as a kind of guardian. Well, what does Paul mean when he refers to the law as a guardian? Well, a guardian was kind of like a nanny on steroids in uh, ancient Greece uh, and, and Rome at this time. Uh, it was the one who would care for a child. Uh, the child would be under the nanny, the, the guardian's um, watch uh, from when he woke up to when he went to school to when he brought him home from school, from when he helped him with his homework and uh, made sure he did his chores, made sure he was uh, staying healthy, right? All of these things. The guardian had full supervision at every point of the child's life. In a sense, really more so 24-7, the guardian supervised the child making sure that he grew properly, grew so that one day he could enter into the fullness of sonship. One day he could enter the freedom of being a son, no longer under a guardian, but now being a son. Now Paul, again, is going to say more about this in chapter 4. In many ways, this portion here uh, springs us and drives us into chapter 4, where Paul is going to flesh out what it means to be a son. Uh, But again, Paul here is emphasizing the fact that the law was a guardian. The law wasn't a means of salvation. The law didn't usurp the promise. It didn't cancel the promise. But the law served the promise by being a guardian. It kept God's people under its supervision very tightly. Right? You can read the Old Testament. You can find all of the laws, 600 plus, as uh, some of the uh, rabbis might draw out or more, um, regarding how the life of God's people in the Old Testament was to be regulated. Very, very particular, very, very um, um, minuscule is going to say that's not the right word, but very to say particular, right? So he's, the law supervised every aspect of their life. And so Paul is saying that the law did this uh, for the people of God until Christ came. Right? The law functioned in this way. It had a good purpose. And in, in, in a sense, it, it imprisoned, as Paul says, everything under um, sin until Christ came. The law had a good purpose, but a temporary purpose. Now, it doesn't mean the law ceases to be operative in the Christian life. You can read the remainder of Galatians, and Paul speaks about the law of love and the law of Christ now ruling us and guiding us. It's not that sonship leads into lawlessness, but once you become a son, the law is no longer our guardian. It's no longer supervising us in such a, in such a, a, a particular, specific way. So Paul wants us to see that regarding the law. It was good, but it was temporary. And therefore, these false teachers who are coming in and saying, we need to reinstitute the Mosaic law, we need to reinstitute circumcision, we need to reinstitute all of these things that God has, has given, the ceremonies of the law, and in the, um, in the various aspects of the law that God gave, Paul's saying that that defeats the whole purpose. 
And it misreads the whole purpose of the law. The law is a guardian, a supervisor, until Christ came. It served a purpose, but its time eventually came to an end. You might say, well, why does, is the law serve this purpose until Christ came? What of Christ's coming changed this? What of Christ, Christ's coming changed the fact that the law was no longer the guardian? Well, the reason is that when Christ comes, he brings his people into the fullness of sonship. It is the coming of Christ is the coming of age of the church, no longer under a guardian as an adolescent, but now becoming full sons so that we relate to the law uh, no longer as a guardian, but as a rule of life for us as uh, the people of God. And so Christ's coming changed everything. Christ's coming changed history. Christ's coming because he is the one who brings us into full sonship. It's he who the Apostle Paul frequently refers to as the son throughout uh, this text and throughout Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, Jesus Christ, and also in chapter 2, Jesus Christ is referred to by Paul as the son. The son of God. Now, yes, the eternal son of God. The one who existed forever with the Father from eternity past, who was God and who was with God. Uh, but also the Son who would come to bring about true sonship and true freedom. You see, Paul can begin to speak about the Son because the Son has come. And those of the church today belong to him. You've, you've been united to him. As, which is the emphasis that Paul gives in our second point here, right? From captives under the law, to now sons in Christ. Notice the language that Paul uses. Verse 26. For in Christ, in Christ, you are no longer under a guardian. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Right? Just to flesh this out. You are all, as a, as a statement of fact, right? Paul is saying here, not... If you do this, you will become sons of God. But he's speaking to the church as those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying that you are, statement of fact, we have some Greek, in-house Greek scholars here. You can ask them. It's a present active indicative. You can ask Leah, ask um, Joshua or somebody. Present active indicative is a statement of fact of what is abiding and true. You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus, right? So Paul is not saying that sonship and those who are children of God is just a generic statement for all who have been made and everybody can appeal to God as Father. Rather, what he's saying here is that it's those who are in Christ who are the sons of God. It's limited, yet as Paul is going to also say, it's open to all. All are invited to come to Christ, to enter into him by faith, to be united to him. You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus, who is the Son, and this is by faith. It's by faith. Again, Paul's emphasis here. How am I a child of God? How am I who was once following after the ways of this world, where Paul speaks about previously in other letters as children of wrath, following Satan, following his ways, being citizens of the kingdom of darkness? How am I made a son of God through, through faith? And faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, and by faith, we, we receive and embrace Jesus Christ and all of his merits. Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished for salvation. That is what faith does. 
It's not to be confused with a work, because as we've said last week, faith is something that God gives. It is a gift of God. And faith is the renouncing of all my works. It comes with an empty hand. I believe Calvin would refer to faith as an empty vase or some type of container, right? It comes not carrying water and carrying wine or carrying something to God, but it comes empty to receive of God. That's what faith is. And so when we come to Christ, we receive him and all of his benefits when we come by faith, believing in him. And if you have believed in Christ, then what Paul has said here is true of you, that you are a son of God. Now you might say, well, why don't you add daughters here? Well, the idea of sonship here is emphasized because the son was the one who was the heir, at least in Jesus' day, right? The son was the one who received the inheritance. And the Apostle Paul here is going to flesh out what it means to be sons of God, recognizes that as sons, whether male or female, we all receive the inheritance promised to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, even uh, salvation uh, itself in Christ. It's the same reason we don't speak or we can include men when we speak of the church as the bride of Christ, right? Men are included as the bride of Christ, just as the women are included as the sons of God. Um, we don't want to distort the scripture's language. Language is, is significant and important. And so that's why Paul here speaks to the whole church, as he's going to say, male or female, we'll explain that in a moment, as sons of God, those who belong to him, those who are sons in the Son. It's the title of a book of uh, one of my professors that I had at Westminster. Uh, son, we are sons in the Son, in Jesus Christ, and in him alone. And so Paul says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And now he begins to explain this further for us, this, this remarkable reality that is true of you if you are in Christ. You are a son of God. He says this, For as many of you, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Again, he's fleshing what it means that we are in Christ. He's saying our baptism did not accomplish that. It wasn't simply that by being baptized with water that this reality was brought about. But rather, our baptism signified and sealed this otherwise spiritual and unseen reality. I can't see the fact that I'm in Christ. Um, It's not something tangible to me. It's not something tangible to you. Yet, we are in Christ and our baptism signifies it. It points as a sign to that unseen spiritual reality given to us by God for our weakness, that we might be assured of that reality, that we might know that it is, is certain and true. It is God's divine pledge that it is, in fact, the case. And so it signifies that reality, and it also seals to us that reality. It assures us. It gives us God's guarantee that I am in Christ. Again, it doesn't accomplish the reality, but it points to and seals that spiritual reality to us. But notice the language. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Again, this is very rich language that I wish we had you know, the capacity to, to kind of see, search the scriptures to see this. The idea of clothing. The idea of what we are wearing. That's what the language here is, is, is getting at. Putting on Christ like a garment. You might remember, if I can give a brief overview, back in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve sinned against God. And what, is the, what do they do in response to that? They clothed themselves in fig leaves or whatever kind of leaves that they might have used. 
Yet God can see through the man-made clothing. God can see through the way man sees to repair his sin and his brokenness and his fallenness. God sees right through that. It doesn't, it doesn't last and it doesn't ultimately provide um, a kind of recovery and a kind of restoration that we truly need. And so God comes to them, sees them, uh, pronounces his curse upon the serpent and his curse upon uh, the man and the woman, promising salvation in the midst of all of it. And then what, is, what does God do? He clothes them himself. God clothes them with animal skins, pointing to the the need for blood to be shed, pointing to the need to be clothed one day, not in what man has manufactured, right? That's what the Galatian uh, heretics are trying to teach them, right? By performance, by doing, by your hands, you can clothe yourself. That's often the message we hear from the world around us as they seek to deal with their consciences that accuse them, or excuse them as they try to deal uh, with their sin and their misery, right? It's this idea that you can clothe yourself. But the testimony of Scripture, the good news of the gospel, is that you cannot clothe yourself. You cannot repair what has been broken. You cannot restore what has, been, what has fallen and, and shattered in Adam. But God can. And God does in Christ. It's why it says here that, uh, that as we've been baptized, you, you, have been, you have put on, you've been clothed in Christ. He is the clothing that the animal skins pointed to. He is the one that you are clothed in. And his glory, therefore, is yours. His status, therefore, is yours. And even as Christ appears before the glory of God, so too you have absolute assurance that you too will one day appear before the glory seat of God. Because you are clothed in Christ. So that when God looks upon you, he sees his son. He sees the son. He sees you as his children in Christ. So that you are no longer one defined by your sin and defined before God in accordance of what you have done and and have not done. But now you are defined before God. Your relationship before God is founded upon Christ. He sees you as if, not only as if you have never sinned or been a sinner, not only as if you have never broken his law, but he sees you as if you have kept his law perfectly, even as Christ has kept the law for you, clothed in his righteousness. You get a picture of this in the Old Testament when the high priest Joshua um, is accused by Satan, right? His filthy garments are pointed out uh, to God. And what does God do? He doesn't tell Joshua, hey, Joshua, clean up your garments. Joshua, get your act together. Right? He doesn't come to Joshua like that. Rather, he, he removes the dirty rags. He removes the dirty garments. And he clothes him with new glorious garments. That's what takes place in salvation, You are sons of God, clothed in Christ. You have put on Christ as a statement of fact because you have believed in him. Those who have believed in Christ have put on Christ. And your relationship to God, therefore, is as secure as Christ's relationship to God is. It's kind of a remarkable thought. Have you thought about that? That if you believe in Jesus Christ... The fact that you are right with God, your relationship with God, is as secure and as certain as Christ's own relationship to his Father. That's the glory that he shares with us as his people. Read John 17, where Jesus prays this very thing to be true of you. 
So that's the reality of being sons of God. You've been baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. You are clothed in him. And may that be the way you view yourself. Because as I've clothed myself in Christ, as I've put him on, well, then I'm going to grow into his likeness, as Paul's going to flesh out later, right? It doesn't mean, it doesn't matter how I perform or what I do. But as those baptized into Christ and belonging to Christ and clothed with Christ, I'm going to seek to glorify him and I'm going to be changed uh, more and more into his image. So Paul, again, is fleshing out for us what it means when he says to you that you are all sons of God. You've been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now also, verse 28. He says this, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Right? He's drawing out an implication of this, of saying that just as you have all put on Christ, and you are all sons of God, so therefore there are no longer these distinctions that are to be made among you. Now, you might say, well, why does Paul appeal to these three different groups, right? Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Well, it seems likely, and Pastor Paul actually knows maybe this a bit better than I do, so you can ask him some questions as well. But it was very, very likely that Paul is objecting to various practices that, that, and mindset of his day. It was believed, again, that um, the more law that you had, the more commandments that you could follow— the more righteous you would be. So if you have more commandments, more law, more righteous. And therefore, what was prized and what was, what was um, idolized was being a male Jew. Because the Jews believed that, that, um, that the male had more commandments given to him in the Old Testament. Right? You can read the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament. Most of them were addressed to the male to the man. And therefore, when, when Paul is saying here, draw, drawing out these distinctions, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, he's saying these distinctions you've made as if one could be more righteous than the other, as if the Greek could be more righteous than the Jew, or the Jew more righteous than the Greek, or the slave uh, more righteous than the free, or the free more righteous than the slave, or if the male was more righteous than the female. Right? Paul's saying these distinctions of righteousness before God that you have fabricated no longer hold and cannot hold because you are all, again, sons of God, clothed with Christ. But there is no longer this, 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 this distinction. And therefore, we shouldn't begin pressing these um, distinctions further, right? Paul's not saying here, well, there's no longer male and female, therefore roles and distinctions within the church should no longer be had, right? Some people make that argument. Um, but again, that's not Paul's focus here, right? Paul's focus here is specifically answering the question, how am I right with God? How am I made righteous before God? And there is that common mindset again of saying, well, because I am male and because I am a Jew, I have the law and I have more law, and therefore I'm more righteous than others. Paul is saying that's, that's not the case. Christ makes you all equal before God. None is more righteous than the other. And therefore, you can't look at your brother or sister here and say, well, I'm more righteous than them. You are all one, as it says here. You're all one in Christ Jesus, equal. There's no, none of these distinctions. It doesn't, that doesn't um, blur away roles and, and various other ways in which men and women are distinct. 
But that's not Paul's focus here, just to make that point. I won't elaborate further on that. Um, But what Paul's point here is to say that there are no longer distinctions, as if some could have more law than other. It is Christ alone by whom I am defined before God, his righteousness, which is equally mine and equally yours and yours and yours and yours, right? It's equally all who belong to Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul is getting at in verse 28. There is a a unity, there is an equality in Christ before God. And finally, Paul says in verse 29, as a kind of conclusion to this whole chapter here, he says then, if you are Christ's, and just pause there for a moment and think about that. If you are Christ's, if you belong to him, and the fact that we may belong to him and can belong to him, again, is that remarkable thing of the gospel. It's a remarkable grace of God in taking those who are not sons and making us sons in the Son. This is the work of God alone, not fabricated by man, not, not contributed to by man, but accomplished by... If you are Christ, and Paul's not asking you to question that, right? He's already gave you a statement of fact. You are all sons of God if you are in Christ, if you have believed in Jesus Christ. You are all sons of God. We're good. And he says there, um, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, he's going to flesh this out uh, much later. Not much later, but in the next chapter for us. What it means that we are heirs uh, to the promise. Uh, But Paul, again, does not want us to begin questioning here. Like, are you, am I in Christ or am I not? Right? That's not his focus. He wants us to have our gaze by faith, solely upon Jesus Christ, to rest in him, not to be troubled by those who would say you need to do this, this, and that, not to add law on top of what God has done in Christ, but that you might rest in Jesus Christ. For in Christ Jesus, you are, statement of fact, sons of God through faith. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so kind and gracious to us. You've loved the world. You've sent your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you for Christ. Thank you that those who have come to believe in him have been clothed in him. And so help us then to honor and glorify him, to rest in him, and to know that we are not only without our sin before you, for it has been forgiven in Christ, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Uh, but we are made righteous. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. And so thank you for that. Help us to enjoy such forgiveness. Help us to enjoy the salvation and the benefits of Christ and recognize that he is a sufficient Savior who saves to the utmost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.